In this episode of the Virtually Agile podcast, we're talking women in tech, data-driven continuous improvement, and we play a little game of Let's Get Ruthless. To hear each episode as it lands, you need but click a button, subscribe. Let's do this. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Your curiosity was piqued once more, and you're back on the Virtually Agile podcast with Chris Stone, the continuous improvement coach. We love amplifying newer voices here on the show, and today's guest is one such voice an Agile coach and founder of a community that focuses on supporting women with public speaking in Agile and tech. Welcome to the show, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. Now, tell me about you and your fascinating journey and where does China come into the equation? Yes, so my journey with Agile, I think, started before I interacted with organizations specifically on Agile journeys. And what I mean by that is that I think that my experience academically and prior to entering the workforce was actually the experience that primarily shaped my agile mindset. So for me, I started to have this kind of insatiable curiosity with China growing up. Specifically, I was doing my A-levels and I was studying Chinese history and I came up to a point where the course was actually ending and they showed us a chart which demonstrated how many people had died under different dictators, which was shocking to see because I didn't realize how many people had died under the communist regime in China. And it made me kind of reflect on which kind of stories were told growing up, which histories were kind of given access to. And I contrasted that with the China that I was seeing in the present day So this is around 2012, 2013, and the headlines were very much about China's kind of rapid economic growth and its kind of future influence in the world. And I really wanted to kind of pair up that history that I'd been given about the kind of that gap that had been created between 1949 and present day. So to cut a quite a long story short, which kind of spans seven years, I ended up moving to China at 18. I lived in a relatively small town as one of a very few foreigners. I had kind of no prior contacts in the country, didn't yet speak any Mandarin, um, but started to kind of accept this mindset of allowing uncertainty to be a constant, but constantly kind of iterating and developing and learning as I go, because I could never plan what was going to happen or what experiences I was going to have in a given day. Later, I kind of studied more academically. I got four scholarships to study, study Mandarin and do my master's at various universities in China. And I think throughout that experience, I developed what I see as the kind of foundations of the agile mindset of taking a step and learning from that experience of kind of really understanding the importance of putting yourself in a scenario. So for example, not just learning about your users or an environment or market theoretically, but actually getting on the ground and kind of getting very hands-on in that learning to kind of speak across barriers, whether that is kind of language barriers or maybe like technical barriers and being surrounded by foreign languages and learning enough of that to facilitate an outcome. I think all of that before I entered the workforce really allowed me to be an effective Agile coach. So I would say my journey with Agile started with China, even though it was an unconventional journey. And we love unconventional journeys on the show. We not too long ago, had a guest, Elle, who surprised me by sharing her 
her trajectory of flight crew to agile coach, something I, I hadn't possibly considered being an option. And I love that you've had an equally interesting journey from disappearing off to China aged 18, very courageous to do so, learning new languages, constantly being in the, the unknown, experimenting, learning, adjusting and developing the mindset that we know helps others do the same in the agile space. So great journey. Thank you for sharing. I understand you're a huge advocate for women in agile and tech, and is it you're a founder of Take the Mic? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think that journey started with my own desire to want to create more of a platform within the agile space for a bit of background. My first agile coaching job was at a company where I was the first and only agile coach. So I didn't necessarily have that community around me or examples of what being kind of more public facing might look like or kind of interacting with the community in a kind of more consistent way. So I actually did a really brilliant course called Couch to Conference, which is done by a company called RecWorks. And they focus on equipping women in the agile and tech space to feel confident going into conferences as a new speaker. Um, that was really fantastic because they look at everything from putting together short talks to choosing topics to finding mentors and kind of giving you the ability to ask different questions um, over time. And that actually culminated in me speaking at a conference called DevOps earlier this year. But once that conference had ended, I found that a gap had been created again where I didn't have the community, the accountability, the shared network and kind of just kind of sharing of experiences over time to help me continue to take things to the next level. So out of that gap, I created a small kind of group of women who are very intentional about building their public speaking profiles. So we have people in the agile space, in the tech space, so software engineers, agile coaches, project managers, delivery leads. And essentially the goal is to Think about what success looks like for us as individuals and then how, keep each other accountable, share resources and that journey of ups and downs over time. So that is very much in its infancy, but we've already had people speaking, you know, in Amsterdam and Poland in kind of various different meetups. I'm also kind of in the process of potentially speaking at something early, sorry, later this year. And that kind of very much kind of leaning on the support of other people who've already been through similar CFP processes and things like that. So that's something that really makes me excited because I get to gain from it. And then I also get to give back and give other people that experience. And hopefully we're all going to grow together. Sounds amazing. So there you have it, listeners. If you are looking to experience public speaking or find your community uh, of people that could help you along your, your pathway, depending on what you're trying to achieve, Take the Mic is one such community for you. Uh, I'll give you an opportunity later on to share the details, Maddie, as to how people can access that community. I'm always interested to learn uh, the different perspectives of others. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a woman. I can't possibly experience what you've experienced. What do you believe holds women back from public speaking? Good question. The first thing that comes to mind and something that I wasn't necessarily anticipating, but I, I think 
even in the agile space where women are better represented than the tech space, there is still, in my experience, a lot of like predominantly male lineup. So even when I go to things like meetups, conferences, maybe less so, but I'm often not given the opportunity to see role models or have role models as visible as kind of male counterparts. And I think that's like disheartening because you think, okay, well, sometimes even women are in the majority in the agile space. So how is it the case that we've still got all like 100% male lineups and meetups that I'm going to? So I think that lack of kind of role models and the lack of kind of perception that you can that get to that level and like people are willing to give opportunities and that you can kind of base your public speaking trajectory or something that's seen at the moment I think that can kind of decrease morale but then I also think that there perhaps is a lot of socialization that happens um with women at like a very young age where it means that women tend to be more self-critical, more kind of erring towards perfectionism. And as a result, I think that public speaking and making yourself more visible in public spaces that can become, be seen like as more of a challenge for a woman because there's so many kind of mental obstacles to overcome. And that doesn't mean that men don't also face that, but I think on average, there are women have socialized to be that way. And studies have shown that if something happens like a mistake or a failure women tend to internalize that and think it's a reflection of them rather than a reflection of something external so I think the kind of the conditioning and then when you look out into the environment that isn't necessarily someone who has overcome that who's much more visible for you I think the pairing of both of those things alongside many other factors is yeah kind of creates a dynamic where women feel that there are challenges in that way Really useful insights. The the things that come to mind when you were sharing your response was the systemic, you know, the deeply rooted, the things that happen from a young age for women contributes to that, I guess, limiting belief that holds people back. And I know there is data that suggests, for example, when it comes to job applications, women are less likely to apply for a job if they don't meet all of the criteria listed, whereas a man is more likely to submit an application regardless. And therefore, there's an already limiting belief holding women back from applying for positions. And, and that same thing, I imagine, I'm, I don't know the data on this, but I imagine the same thing is true of public speaking. There might be something that holds someone back from saying, oh, well, my, my voice isn't as welcome or equally warranted, or I'm just not seeing the, the same exposure to great role models out there. Now, I do have a personal example that I would love to share around representation in the Agile space in particular. And I can't talk to tech in general, but Agile, the Agile space in particular, they are doing a lot to try and improve representation. Uh, I was recently in the, the running for a, a keynote talk at a, a conference in Africa and didn't quite make the cut. And the, the reason they gave was because they were looking to increase diversity, which is fantastic. It's, it's slightly disappointing for me, but it's it's, it's a great thing because they are trying to improve diversity. They had had in the past multiple male, white male keynote speakers. They were trying to be more diverse and ensuring that those people had opportunities to, you know, to keynote as well. So it's not perfect, 
but they are making a lot of efforts to try and change that. So for any listeners that are holding themselves back in any way or, or doubting, I encourage you to, to give it a go. And I guess on, on that note, Maddie, what's your single piece of advice that, for someone looking to get started with public speaking? Yeah. There's a lot that I also want to respond to uh, based on what you said, but I'll ask, answer your question first. So, I mean, I mean, you, you, you can answer in whatever way. If you want to respond first, go for that and then we can go on to the other one. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll respond. So I think the singular piece of advice would be to find a theme or a topic that really excites you because, yes, there are challenges, but that is inevitable in any kind of goal and kind of especially the big goal that you set in life. And so you need to have that kind of vision and that topic that makes those challenges and overcoming those challenges worth it. And often, if you're doing more in the public speaking space, you're likely doing that on top of additional responsibilities and you're then going to have to prioritize that potentially in your personal life as well, or at least kind of prioritize that against things in your personal life. So for me, I found that if the topic itself is worth it and I'm excited about it and it's something that makes me feel like I'm contributing in a way that's having an impact in an area that's really meaningful to me, then all of the other things that we've spoken about are less kind of burdensome and impactful because I've kind of got that fire within me. So that's a singular piece of advice. And I think maintaining that can come from being in community because that fire can be lit, but then how do you sustain that over time? I think community is a massive part of that too. I often say that your your net worth is not your network, your community is. Mm -hmm. you, you had some thoughts on what I previously shared around the, the improving diversity side. Or yeah, you want to respond yeah. To what I was saying. So I wanted to give some more specific examples of initiatives that I've utilized as a woman in Agile, which have really helped me. And I think back your point in terms of there being intentionality in the sector in terms of increasing representation. So one of the things that I did earlier on in my career was I got one of the women in Agile scholarships to do some training. I did my PSM2. I was previously at a company that wasn't able to provide that kind of training resource at the time. And that was such a brilliant experience. I did that with a PSM, sorry, a professional scrum trainer who was also a woman and the whole experience was brilliant. And I've also taken advantage of a couple of mentoring schemes in the Agile space, which are geared towards women as well. The one that I've done, I think is by a company called Agile, I can't remember. I have to check my <laughs> have to check my um, profile, but it's normally done in the last quarter of the year, and I found it to be like a really great resource. So there are things that you can really capitalize on as well, and there are groups that are trying to make women feel supported in the space. And I feel, for the most part, that's really true. I think public speaking in particular is probably where it becomes more challenging because you are then an individual and like so much of that has is like a slightly isolating experience like you're there it's then kind of you're making it about you rather or at least it can feel like that it's kind of more of an individual focus and focus on what you can contribute so I think that 
that isolation needs the kind of counter approach of like getting in community to support you on that journey. Amazing resources. And there's a few more that I would love to just share with others. The Women in Agile, uh, not only do they support with scholarships to help people access uh, training, they also have a launching new voices program. And that is specifically designed towards women looking to access public speaking and speak for the first time. The way it works is they provide a mentor, an experienced speaker to guide that, that mentee or that, that new voice through their journey all the way up to the day when they, they speak and they're, they're, you know, that, me- that mentor is alongside them on the day every, you know, from, from the beginning to creating their talk all the way through to delivering on the day. I've personally been a mentee. I recently did that in Orlando for Sally Gasser. She absolutely nailed it. She, she spoke for the first time. She's a, a woman in Agile in Egypt and, and you know, a, a country largely dominated by male voices. And she did a great job. So there are more resources out there than you are probably aware of, folks, to help you get started. There is even a new community that's focused on women in product. More to follow on that. A future guest, L of mine, is going to be sharing more on women in product and how they can support you on your journey too. And I've got the name that I forgot, which is Agility Today, run by women in Agile and Tech. What we'll do is we'll ensure that the show notes folks include some of these links that you can access. Great. Right, Maddie, we both love continuous improvement and I know you're particularly keen on the data-driven side of things. Why is that important to you? I think because in my experience, it's often underutilized and I think it can add another point which aids the kind of inspection and adaption process. So I think there's danger of erring too much on either side of like qualitative or quantitative. So I'm definitely not advocating for kind of removing the human experience and just focusing on the data. But I think the data can often cut through the noise and find a perspective that either kind of validates the experience or actually provides a perspective that the team hasn't yet considered or shows that a problem is larger than we saw or less than we saw. And I think it's just kind of about adding that depth to continuous improvement. So you've got another thing to really aid that journey. The great thing about data is there's no emotion in it. And a really powerful technique is just to expose the data to the team or company and say, hey, given what this is telling us, what do we want to do? Sometimes the answer is absolutely nothing. And that might be a valid response. However, if we are collectively aware of this data, and maybe the data is telling us that something isn't quite going well, and we choose to do nothing, that's a decision and it's our decision. So we're aware of what that data is telling us. We are choosing to do nothing. That means that we're accepting our current reality and things won't change unless we do something different. So that's a quite a powerful anchor to, right, we've got to, we've got to change something. If you want change, you've got to actually change, not just talk about change. And yeah, as you say, alongside the qualitative, the, the great discussions, the interactions you have with people in, in retrospectives, providing data to support and aid and guide decisions is key. 
it's a bit like a, a compass. I, I consider metrics a compass on your journey. And you'll obviously find the, the particular metrics that fit your context, the particular outcomes you're trying to achieve. And then you'll build in the feedback loops that enable you to check how are things going in pursuit of our goals? What's the data telling us? Do we need to amplify things? Is this going really well? Or do we need to pivot a little bit? Maybe stop doing that entirely because it's just not working. So data-driven continuous improvement, very powerful. And I understand you've got a story about switching from story points to flow metrics and the impact that had on the team and the stakeholders. Do tell. Yes. So if I take a step back, one of the talks that I've done recently was titled The Ruthless Elimination of Process. And the idea behind that talk is that we often emphasize closing learning loops in the product space. So we're really intentional about once we've released a feature, ensuring that we've got user feedback, understanding the effectiveness and whether it's achieved a certain outcome. But my challenge during my talk was how often do we do that with our own continuous improvement initiatives and experiments in terms of ways of working? So how often are we closing feedback loops on something that's a complementary practice that we might have started at a given point of time, but have we actually gone back to the team and said, did this have the desired impact? Do you want to keep it? Do we want to adjust it and upgrade? Or do we want to bin it? And I think that often one of the most entrenched practices within teams is story pointing. And often we haven't gone back to the team and asked whether or not this is an, an effective complementary practice. And in my case, when I have done that, I've actually got very low value scores from the team. So if you ask a question about kind of on a scale of one to 10, how valuable is the kind of practice of story pointing? I've on average got anywhere between like a three and a six for a given team. And I think that's relatively low given that anything that we do from a ways of working perspective should really be a value add rather than like a <laughs> in between or value detract. That's really not what kind of what we're going for. So that kind of whole framing really spurred a lot of work in this space for me. And when I first asked the question about the value of this practice, I didn't necessarily have the alternative to provide for the team. And so a couple of years ago, it meant going on a journey with a given team to find out what is a potential alternative and is that alternative better than what we're currently doing? So I can speak a bit to that in a second, but I'll just kind of pause here before going into, into that a bit more. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very polarizing topic, right? Mm -hmm. Story pointing. I know the creator, Ron Jeffries, he doesn't believe in story pointing himself. He says he doesn't, he wishes he didn't create the damn thing. Doesn't want it attributed to him. And I, I'm not someone who says that story points are the devil, right? They are sometimes useful for teams, especially newer teams who are trying to gauge and understand what they can do, what the art of the possible is for them, what they can achieve in a given time frame. The challenge of story points is that they're so often conflated to other things. They're used for purposes through which they were never intended. They are used to say, hey, if you can deliver this many story points, when will this be done? Or how many of these can we do by this date? And it doesn't tend to work very well that way. 
And as we know, story points is still some form of estimation, and humans are notoriously bad at estimates. So I do believe there are better alternatives. And I know you're going to share one of those alternatives now. What have you got? Yeah. And before I share, I would completely agree with you there, Chris, that no practice is ends in itself. So it will always be contextual and it will always be a question of how effective is this in achieving a certain goal. So in this kind of sphere, it's kind of forecasting, planning and kind of often having like a shared understanding of the complexity of a given piece of work. So then you kind of have to ask what tool is best for this given scenario. And I'm sure that there are teams out there that feel story pointing is effective. I just haven't personally worked with any of them yet. So so yeah, this isn't a, a message of either one is good or bad, but that my personal experience has been that there's been more effective tools. So for me, there's that more effective tool is the combination of different flow metrics. So work in progress limits, throughput, work item age, and um, cycle times. And the journey of implementing this in the first team that I worked on this with was very, very gradual. And I think that actually throughout the process of implementing flow metrics, we learned so much about other ways of working, which I think that journey in and of itself is valuable regardless of your kind of end result of whether you go or not you go for flow metrics or story points. Um, So I can give an example. um, And when I'm talking, I guess, in this case about implementing flow metrics, it's kind of premised on kind of bringing in Kanban as a system, as like an additional uh, practice alongside Scrum in this case. So the first step in doing that was to really kind of assess our foundations of flow and like how we were visualizing work and also how we were defining product backlog items. And in that particular context, we had inherited a lot of practices from a consultancy that had previously worked with the team prior to a lot of the team joining and me taking on the role of agile coach. So we had a lot of things that kind of reflected their needs at the time, but not necessarily the current team's needs. So one of the things we actually did was we were super, super granular about everything that was going to happen in a given sprint. So we document everything from like gram events to exit meetings and all of this was defined in like the backlog. And in that moment, we could say, okay, given that we're going to reevaluate our flow and product backlog items, how do we actually want to define a PBI? And in that, we said we want to be way more value focused, only focus on the things that are going to have like indirect or direct impact on the product or the team. And we don't need to be recording all of these meetings because it's actual clutter. So even in the process of moving towards, we already got rid of a piece of waste in the process. And, and another example is that we then started using work in progress limits and work item aid and work item aids, particularly in the context of the daily scrum is a really helpful way to reframe the questions and the conversations you have in that event. So instead of using the classic three questions, you can move towards prioritizing things with the highest work item aid. And as we were mentioning earlier, like prompting conversations around, does this data tell us anything impactful? And if so, do we want to adjust? our actions today to potentially get it over the line, swarm on something, collaboratively problem solve, or actually do we anticipate that this is going to take 
this long and it's not actually a reflection of a problem, but at least you've got that kind of preemptive data point to spark that conversation. And I think that that again was a really helpful small change that really helped us eliminate waste in our Scrum events because we were no longer sharing information that wasn't useful, but really kind of focusing on planning an impediment and removing in a way that kind of is the intention of the meeting, but isn't necessarily always the case. So those are just kind of two examples on how the voter flow metrics actually helped us eliminate waste. And I can go a little bit more into kind of our end result, but um, again, I'll pause there. Thank you for pausing. It's some really tangible examples of how you've transitioned away from existing ways of working or towards different ways of working, uh, taking a value-based approach as you do so, and focusing on, as you say, flow through the system, flow of value through the system, as opposed to what can feel like some arbitrary processes that teams often get stuck in doing just because it's the way they've always done things. So I do believe in periodically pausing and saying, hey, is this process that we've been using forever still valuable to us? It's like a a spring clean and audit, like ruthlessly saying, does this fit for our context anymore? Or have we have we learned that it doesn't and there are better ways of doing things? Your way of highlighting just on like a perfection system or a, you know, does this add value to us? Does this process add value to us? Mm-hmm. I think more teams, companies even, could benefit from doing these sorts of audits. If you sent out a quick one question survey, does this you know, scrum of scrums meeting add value to you? And if you're getting low scores, okay, what do we want to do differently? I actually heavily encourage and heavily promote that other coaches, scrum masters, change agents, whoever you are, if you're a facilitator of any sort of meeting, build in a feedback loop into every single one of them that does a quick value score. Was this a valuable use of my time? How could it be better? And then you're continuously improving as you go along, capturing data from people that can drive making decisions and and moving forwards. So you're not just doing it based on, oh, we should change this because it doesn't fit. You're saying, well, actually, the score for this, you know, 50 people responded saying that this is a low value meeting for us. Clearly, something's got to change. That's what the data is telling us. What do we want to do as a consequence? Let's position this as an experiment. How long could we try it for? What do we expect might happen if we do this? I think a lot of people focus on, you know, actions from retrospectives. Mm -hmm. I believe you could probably change the, the wording for that and just say, right, it's an experiment. What's our next experiment? What do we think might happen if we try this? What data will tell us we're on the right track? And when are we going to review that again? And as I, just, as I said earlier, amplify the things that are working, remove the things that aren't, you know, trim that waste away. Yeah, and I think that's Let- where data becomes so helpful because you as a coach, scrum master, whatever your capacity is, you might have an observation that something isn't providing as much value as it could, but essentially that is your individual opinion. And so you, you want to kind of move into that coaching stance of collecting data, asking questions from other people, understanding their opinion. And then if the data validates that there is a problem there or an opportunity to improve, then you can kind of move more into that kind of mentoring and here's another option. And this is why I've seen things work in the past, but until you've done that, and got the data and feedback there, then um, you're at risk of sharing unwarranted opinions and not necessarily kind of responding to the needs of the team or the people that you're working with. Sure. Let's have a very quick take on the the, the end result, the outcomes yes. on that team then. Conscious it has to be 
short and snappy. So just give us a, a few notes on what, what that team experienced as a consequence of these changes. And then we're going to dive into a quick game about being ruthless. Great. So end result was that we continued with story points and then added on flow metrics and was got to a point where we were able to evaluate both and the risk and cost of going with one or the other was pretty much the same because we had both available to us. The overwhelming consensus was that flow metrics was a much better way of working for delivering valuable increments. We found that it placed much better value on, so much better emphasis and quality and value rather than getting kind of story points over the line. We felt there was much better reflection of reality, required less time and effort to execute. And essentially that those were metrics that we could communicate well to stakeholders and were grounded in principles and language that they understood as well, which really helped with our stakeholder communication and work with the wider organization as well. So that was the consensus of that experiment. And I've also found that other experiments that I've done to date have also been of similar conclusions. Amazing. Thank you for sharing really useful insights. It's time to be ruthless, Maddie. We're going to play a game. It's okay. called Let's Get Ruthless. We're going to take it in turns to suggest agile topics, events, or challenges. And then we're going to share ruthless ideas as to how you could simplify, make them leaner or less wasteful. There are no wrong answers. Are you ready to be ruthless? Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. I'll go first. Yeah. And since we were talking about meetings. Yeah. Let's think agile meetings. How could we be ruthless about agile meetings? So to your point earlier, I think that unless there's a really clear value add for that meeting and a reason for each individual to be in the room, then I would err on the side of chucking it out. Yeah, Bennett. I'm with you there, right? So I, I think a lot of teams and a lot of coaches even will probably get very or very animated about the fact that you need to have each of the each and every one of these meetings or you're not doing agile correctly. And I'm not one of those people, right? To me, it's the outcome that matters first, the ways of working second, and then continuous improvement third. And if a particular meeting just doesn't fit that particular context, those people, their culture, the way they're working, for whatever reason, you should always explore alternatives, whether that's making part of it asynchronous, whether that's uh, adding a rule where if anyone isn't getting value or isn't actively contributing for a meet to a meeting, they can just leave whenever without having to flag or say so. Whether it's you know, a just general principle where you say no agenda, no attendance. Just I won't accept unless you put something in. Because so often, you know, these meetings they become part of the 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 furniture in a company. They never change, and they're just they're just wasteful. All right, your turn. Chuck a topic my way, and we'll see what happens. Stakeholder communication. Stakeholder communication. All right. How can we be ruthless about that? I'm going to go with, let's not call it stakeholder communication for a start. Let's call it engagement. And yeah, let's just, just remove all stakeholder communication that doesn't result in tangible, actionable information or, or value. So again, it comes back to some of that, that bureaucracy that we often get stuck with. Uh, just, just kill it if it's not adding value. And I think that the problem is that we don't do that sense check, 
right? We just stick with the status quo the way we've always done things rather than actively challenging things. What do you think? Yeah, I ask because I've seen in a lot of scenarios a lot of one-way async communication. Or I call it communication because I don't think it is engagement <laughs> um, with stakeholders. And then on kind of asking them the value of these kind of emails and reports and whether they take anything actionable um, from them, I've often found that that's not the case. And so there's a lot of time invested for very little impact. So I think it's another great way that you can eliminate waste and think about, okay, if there is information here that we want them to engage in, what does that look like in a better format? And often it might be in a review format, but sometimes they might it might be something else. And I think getting creative around that is, yeah, a good path forward. On that lens, so often status reports, right? Status reports mm. are, are requested. And again, I understand why we do it. We all want to feel warm and fuzzy inside that things are in control. And we want to promote transparency. But let's explore a scenario. Someone spends an hour or more creating a status report, going around to all of the different people involved and saying, what's, what's the latest on this and what's the latest on this, producing this beautiful report, chucking it out there, and then no one reads it. And you're like, why have I done this? Is this adding value? Again, it's just something we've always done. So again, I'm, I'm a fan of just killing all communication until you realize it's needed or until someone screams for it and says, yes, let's do this. Or even just starting with an audit and saying, which communication serves our outcomes? Which ones do we need to add? And I think there's a really useful simplification process when it comes to any team. If you're doing a retrospective, if you're thinking about continuous improvement, don't start by adding new things unless you are fully aware of the one rule, which is you don't add something new unless something disappears as a consequence. And in fact, our goal should be let's remove things, not add. I really like that. All right. Final one for you, Maddie. Let's be ruthless about backlogs. How could we simplify, make them leaner, less wasteful? What have you got? So I think there's often <laughs> scenarios where you have the bottom of your backlog, the low priority items, which you're highly, highly, highly unlikely to ever really get to. They're just hanging around, taking up space, enjoying their, <laughs> their life there. But something that you can do, I guess, is have like work item age on the things in your product backlog and if you're getting to a point where something is hanging around or it's been there for a long time or you intentionally know it's low priority unless there is value in keeping that because of certain information and even then you might want to kind of really reconsider if, if is that information valuable if you're never going to do anything about it but kind of really taking that ruthless approach to backlogs and I've actually seen teams do this exercise with their backlog in general and be like our intention is to get rid of as much as possible. So yeah, take that axe to your backlog and see what happens. I love that you said axe because my axe is over there on the left and it's covered in Get unicorns. it out. <laughs> I'm very tempted to get it out, but I don't want to make noise on the podcast. I, yeah, I love the, the notion of, of cleaning the backlog and being ruthless about doing so. There's a number of techniques you can use here. You can use a, a filter on work item age and say, hey, anything over, over six months gets automatically deleted because if someone really needs it, they will soon shout when it suddenly disappears and isn't talked about anymore. You could try 
Tinder backlog where you ghost the things, you know, you just remove them from the backlog and that's the act of ghosting. Or, you know, a super like means it's ghost the top of the backlog, it's really important, or a left swipe, maybe maybe later, you know. So you can you can use gamification around it as well and be a bit more ruthless with it. I do firmly believe in anything older than a certain time period should just be entirely deleted though, because as you say, every time it's there, it's cluttering, it's noise, it means that you're seeing it, which context switches and is therefore wasteful. So folks, keep that backlog tidy and be ruthless about doing it. Just kill the backlog. Don't keep adding to it. Because otherwise it becomes the place where hopes and dreams go to die. All right. Uh, It's been a great having you on the show. You've been an amazing guest, Maddie. Where can our listeners learn more about you and take the mic? Yes. So I hang out a lot lot on LinkedIn and trying to be much more active there. So if you are interested in the take the mic community, please just give me a message and I can, yeah, get to know you and add you in. Perfect. Did you like this episode? Why not share it with someone who might enjoy it? Oh, and subscribe to the show. It makes my cat Celeste very happy. Don't stop believing, folks. Till next time. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Chris. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.